Hey, good morning, North Boulevard, whether at East or West or online or anywhere else. Julie and I both tested positive for COVID this past Wednesday. And uh, our symptoms are relatively mild. You know, we've got a few symptoms. But the, the biggest concern is that we not infect anyone else. So we're both quarantining. And we've got a lot of folks who could preach today. In fact, we've got a lot of folks who could have preached this very sermon. But I've been working on it for a long time, for months. And kind of structured the whole thing around me doing this lesson. So if you will indulge me in my sitting in a chair and, and really more just talking to you than preaching at you, what I'll give you in return is a shorter version and you'll get out even earlier where you can go have your breakfast or whatever it is you want to do. Let me start by just saying that there are an increasing number of people in the U.S. who aren't receiving a spiritual legacy. They're not getting... They're not getting handed down the beauties of the treasures of the Christian faith, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the power of salvation, the instructions of the Word of God, and then the hopes of God, that hope of a great future. I read a, a post uh, not very long ago of a, an atheist, a woman uh, who lives in Florida. In fact, actually, I got a little section of that quote where she describes herself as a Unitarian, Universalist, Humanist, Agnostic, Pagan, Atheist, Buddhist, and pseudo-Hindu yoga. We are leaving a legacy. The only question is, what kind of legacy are we living, leaving? Because everybody leaves a legacy. There was a study that was done years ago, I mean, like decades, decades and decades ago, and it's kind of made the preacher rounds. It's not exactly a preacher's story. It's actually, there's some truth to it, but it's, it's a little quirky, and so <laughs> it's one of those you might want to double check on a few things, but it's actually the story of two New Englanders from the 18th century. One of them was Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758. Edwards is one of the most well-known preachers in American history. If you know anything about him, he's the guy, um, he was associated with Yale University, but he's the guy that preached a sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the guy. Edwards deliberately thought through about how he would leave a Christian legacy for his heirs. Now, someone did a, this really was a study that was published on this. Edwards is associated with Connecticut and Massachusetts mostly, but he had some New York connections. Also in New York was a guy by the name of Max J-U-K-E, or sometimes J-U-K-S, I'll say Juke, who was kind of a ne'er-do-well who lived in New York around the same time as uh as Jonathan Edwards flourished. And Duke really had no ambition for his children. He had no, no interest in leaving a great legacy. He was, um, wasn't exactly a Christian, but he, was, he wasn't really, um, he was kind of more of a pagan in his lifestyle. So whoever this was, again, the study was done years ago. The study surveyed the descendants for several generations of both Duke and Edwards, and I want to share with you the numbers that they came up with. Jonathan Edwards, the Christian who believed in leaving a Christian legacy for his kids, had, as of, as of the point of this study, 729 descendants. Of this number, 300 of them became ministers. There were 65, 65 college presidents descended from Jonathan Edwards. 13 university presidents, 60 authors of books, three U.S. congressmen, and one vice president of the United States of America. And according to the study, not one single descendant ever went to jail. 
again, this is relatively true. Max Duke, however, sort of wasn't all that interested in his descendants, wasn't all that interested in his legacy. So in this study, he had 1,026 descendants. Of the 1,026, 300 of them died before really reaching full adulthood. 100 of them ended up in jail for an average of 13 years each. 190 of them became public prostitutes, according to this study. And there were well over 100 who were always in trouble with the law for alcoholism and ended up making enormous uh, demands of the state in terms of its resources to take care of the descendants of this family. So here's the thing. Both Edwards and Duke left a legacy. One of them thought out his legacy and left a legacy of greatness. The other one didn't think through his legacy and left a legacy of pain. The deal is, you're going to leave a legacy. The other question is, what kind of legacy, we, what kind of legacy will you leave? And the same is true for churches. North Boulevard will leave a legacy, and you as a member, as a participant, as a member of the family, the body of Christ here, you're going to leave a legacy. And the only real question is, what kind of legacy will we leave? That helps us with the text that we have uh, this morning. It's a text out of Hebrews 11, as you might have expected. And in the text, we actually find three characters who, in some ways, you could have really named many ways that they exercise faithfulness. But the Hebrew writer selects what, at least at first, to me, is the strangest way of expressing their faith. So they are Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and I'm in Hebrews 11. Wish you'd get a Bible out and put it in your lap, but you know I don't always call you to do that. But I'm telling you, there's nothing like having a Bible out, and there's nothing like your next, the person sitting next to you, seeing an open Word of God in front of you. It, so when you do that, it's Hebrews 11, verses 20, 21, and 22. So listen to how these three ordinary men are christened as extraordinary in this text. And again, you may have the same initial response I had to this, which is, what's so extraordinary about that? I don't get it. Here we go. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac, he's the son of Abraham, blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future, period, done with, done with Isaac. Now, there's a part of me that says, okay, that, that's it. That was faith. He, he blessed his kids. And then the next one, by faith, Jacob, verse 21, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Okay, that just, to me, doesn't feel at the same level as Abraham wandering in a tent for a hundred years, or Noah spending decades building a, a, an ark, or Enoch walking with God and bypassing death so he could be right with God. These just don't feel the same, like they have the same gravity to me. And then we have this in verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction about his bones, period, and we're done. So what's the act of faith in each of these three patriarchs' lives? And the answer is, so when you, when you chew on it, the answer is each of them left a legacy for future generations. And that's a profound act of faith. They each blessed the future generations, generations that were yet unborn, generations they could not even have imagined or conceived they left them the blessing of the work of God. And that's actually, every one of us has that. 
within our strike zone, that we can leave a blessing of God for future generations. But we have to think about it. It doesn't come accidentally. So Joseph, when he blesses his future generations, this is the last of the three in this text, he not only blesses you know, his children, but he even says, hey, there's going to be an exodus down the road. You know, the exodus from Joseph, it came hundreds of years later, but he, he saw it and he blessed it. And he was so confident, Joseph was, he was so confident that God would rescue the Israelites who weren't even enslaved at that moment. That he said, now when you leave and go on your exodus, here's what I want you to do with my bones. He's, Take them and bury them at Shechem. S-H-E-C-H-E-M, Shechem, they say in Israel. Shechem, we say, and when I open my mouth, I don't know what's going to come out sometimes. Uh, and his tomb is still there, by the way. Joseph's tomb is still in the city today of Nablus, which is Shechem. And um, this guy was like, okay, hundreds of years down the road, you're going to be enslaved, and then God's going to rescue, you, and you're going to wander for 40 years. And when you get to the land of promise, bury my bones, you know, in Laverne or whatever. I mean, it's phenomenal. It shows that he did have the faith that God is going to do what God promised and make a great nation out of his people. They left a legacy, guys. They left a, they left a legacy. Now, you know that we're preaching a series that's intended to inform and then motivate us all to rise up, especially on March the 13th, which is Commitment Sunday. And uh, we're asking you to join together so that we end up giving $5 million, committing on March the 13th with three years thereafter to come through on those commitments for a legacy for the people of God, a legacy for God himself that we want to build a building for the West Campus. I discussed that in the last lesson. You can go back and listen to that or watch that. That we want to plant several churches, two or three churches here in the U.S. domestically over the next three to five years. And that we want to double the money that we give, really even more than double the money that we're giving right now to disciple-making movements in the Global South. All totaled, to get that up and running is about $5 million. And you know, at this point, I, I know that some of you are asking different questions. Let me say this, I've heard from some of you <clears throat> that you're saying, hey, we went through this two years ago, we're already in, and you, you really don't have to preach this sermon series for us. By the way, those of you who have said that to me, <laughs> thank you, thank you, I love my church. You're just saying, hey, you don't have to persuade us, just tell us what to do and we'll do it. Um, that's my church. Others of you, though, you haven't heard it all. You just haven't heard it all. And so I need to explain it to you, even if I do it in a short period of time. And some of you probably just, you just need more time to think about it. Or maybe you just need to hear, okay, now tell me again why we're doing this. What are we hoping to accomplish? So in a short period of time, uh, in this lesson this morning, let me talk about the second one. We want to plant a couple of churches, two or three churches over the next three to five years here in the U.S. I'm going to say just a few things about it. I've, I've written some notes because it'll help me stay focused. And so let me use my notes and let me have my uh, a real quick cough here. <laughs> okay. First, why do we want to plant churches? Now, I want to remind you that the Bible really just talks about the church in some ways as the, as the hope of the world. It's the local hope of the world. I, I've mentioned this before, but there are 300, give or take 300,000 uh, churches in the U.S., and they are, it's 300,000 points of light if they'll shine. And so that's why the Bible says, listen to some of the things it says about the local church, about North Boulevard. 
It says that God appointed Christ to be head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. We're the body of Christ. There ought to, we ought to be reproducing everywhere if we really believe this. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you know that you yourselves, and he's talking plural there to the whole church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3, 16. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We ought to want to multiply a man will be united to his wife, Paul says in a, a text on marriage, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So we, the church, are the bride of Jesus. We're, his, we're married to him. And so what we should want is for the whole world to have access to that. And then this one, 1 Timothy 3, 15. Paul says, I want you to know how to conduct yourself in God's family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That is, we're the actual family of God. So without the church, there is no local organization holding the treasures of Christ and presenting them to the world. Without the church, you would not have been reached for Jesus. Without the church, the Bible would not have been preserved. Without the church, the preaching of the gospel would not happen. Without the church, there would be no one fulfilling the great commission of Jesus to go make disciples of all nations. The local church is the hope of the world, and we want more of them, not less. We want to keep multiplying. We want to have babies, lots of church babies. And I want to say the need has never been greater in the U.S. There was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago citing a Gallup poll. In 1940, 75% of all Americans belonged to a local church. In 1940, 75%. Today, fewer than half of Americans belong to a local church. And I already mentioned this last week. Only about 25% of America is in church right now as we speak. That church attendance is 25% or less now. In fact, the number of churches per 100,000 Americans has declined sharply, more than 50%. In the year 1900, there were 28 churches. I shouldn't have said 100,000. 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans. 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans. Today, there are only 11 churches for every 10,000 Americans. The Southern Baptist Convention announced in an article not long ago that only 4% of churches in America will ever reproduce. That means 96% of the churches in America will die without babies, without kids. And th that, guys, that's why the numbers are going down, because churches have lost the vision of planting churches that make disciples. And many of our churches, and I hope you haven't done this, I don't think you have, but many of our churches are only asked the question, what, what can you do for me? What am I going to get out of it? Uh, you know, I want a church that serves me and my needs. And that's going to kill us. That's, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up a cross and follow me. That the the teaching of the Christian faith is not that we hold on to what we have and hold up in a ground somewhere and hope that nothing ever happens and make sure our kids are taken care of. The mission of the church is to go out and make disciples. We plant churches. We multiply. In fact, there was an article that came out in the Christian Chronicle, the largest newspaper in the Churches of Christ, came out just last week. The, it was the lead article describing how Churches of Christ, large churches of Christ, are starting to sell their buildings because their attendance is tanked so much they can't afford to pay for their buildings anymore. I think about this when I think about even some of the churches I've worked with. 
when I was in college, I worked for a church called the New Enterprise Church of Christ in Gibson uh, County, Tennessee. And uh, it was a great blessing for Julie and me. We, we, we weren't married at the time, but we were dating and we were together. <coughs> and um, not long ago, I went online to see, hey, whatever happened to the old New Enterprise Church of Christ? And it's gone. It went out of business. So many churches are going under. Just in the world of the churches of Christ, about every five days, the church of Christ goes out of business forever. I just want to make sure we understand if the church is the bride of Christ, the family of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the bride of Jesus, it matters what we do. And we will leave a legacy. We will leave a legacy. It'll either be the legacy of a, of a, of a juke, the guy whose descendants had never really flourished, or it'll be that legacy of, you know, hundreds of followers of Jesus, college presidents and congressmen and women and whatnot. And I do want to say that um, the numbers aren't encouraging right now, apart from places like North Boulevard. And by the way, if you're at North Boulevard, if you've been here a long time, you probably don't realize that there's some bad news outside our doors. I'm not bragging, but I'm just saying this is the case. Tim Woodruff did a study, uh, a demographic study of Congregations Churches of Christ. I've, I've shared some of this with you in previous lessons. I just want to share one line with you. Woodruff's statistical study of the Churches of Christ indicates that by the year 2050, in 30 years, the Churches of Christ will have lost 80% of its membership in 30 years. Now, God can turn that around, but if he's going to turn it around, it's going to be because churches like North Boulevard said, hey, that's not going to be our legacy, guys. That will not be our legacy. Instead, our legacy is going to be, if it's from God, it needs to be multiplied. That's why we want to plant churches. You need to know that America has, been, has considered itself often a, uh, a Christian nation. That's the case largely through church planting for after the First Great Awakening in the 18th century and through the Second Great Awakening of the early 19th century, a church planting explosion occurred in America that, that Christianized much of the nation. Let me give you, I just want to give you a couple of numbers because it's so amazing to see what actually happened. Um, so the Methodist churches from 1776 to 1860, so from the Declaration of Independence of the outbreak of the Civil War went from 30 congregations in America to 19,833. That is, they were a church planting machine. And that's one reason why there was a point in the late 19th century where one out of every three Americans was a Methodist. It's because they believed, let's have babies, let's multiply. Let's go out and plant churches. You actually can compare numbers. That Methodist is certainly the winner. But the Baptist church went from 380 churches to 11,000. Presbyterians from 300 to 5,000. Churches of Christ went from zero churches to 2,068. Uh, what was happening was these church planters were going everywhere with the idea that since the church is the family of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body and bride of Jesus, we need them everywhere. You may not realize that the American churches of Christ were also a church planting machine. That is, the American churches of Christ, according to Stan uh, Granberg, who uh, leads the largest church of Christ church planting organization, 
Granberg made the statement that from 1906, I want to listen to this number, to 1948, a 42-year period, from 06 to 48, Churches of Christ planted more than 10,000 congregations. That includes North Boulevard, too, by the way. And oftentimes, it was just ordinary men and women, school teachers and bankers and farmers and people that worked at feed mills. And they just said, hey, let's go down the street and start another church. Let's reach those people as well. The church planting was in our DNA. And for a long time, the Churches of Christ were out planting churches all the time. And then one day we just stopped. And I think part of it was we said, well, what's in it for me? I'm not trying to knock anybody, but that's, that's the change. We started saying, I just want to go to a church where I can raise my kids and I get something out of it. And if this one doesn't give it to me, I'll go to another one. So we, we kind of treat it like it was a vending machine. If this vending machine doesn't have the drink I want, I'll go to another vending machine. No, that's not the people of God. The people of God, we have babies. We want to reach the whole world for Jesus. And church planting is one of the most effective ways to do that. There are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, one of them is that church planting just results in about three times the number of baptisms. It just does. You can say, well, I, I don't know why. I, I can't tell you I know why, but it does. That there are lots more baptisms at church plants than there are at, at new church plants than there are at established churches. There are also new leaders that rise up. I mean, at West Campus, all these new readers. At Smyrna Laverne, there were so many leaders who poured your heart out and did such a great job. Don't think it was in vain. You reached scores of people with the gospel. We baptized dozens of people there. Every effort matters. It's like, this is how God rallies the people. In fact, I'll tell you just two stories. I'll make them really quick. Marshall Keeble who was one of the most celebrated black preachers in the Church of Christ, planted more than 250 churches, which means that he planted over the course of his lifetime one church for every four months he lived. That's who we used to be. We need to get back to that. And I'm going to tell you one other. So in 18 and 10, there was one Church of Christ in uh, Warren County, Tennessee. Warren County, Tennessee is in Middle Tennessee. It... it uh, it's close to where we are in Rutherford County, but more, a little bit more rural. It's at the foot of what's called the Cumberland Plateau. And actually, I don't know the population of Warren County, but maybe 30,000, 40, I don't know, something like that. There was one Church of Christ there in the year 1810, but it believed that church, the old Philadelphia church, believed in planting churches. So within the next 40 years, they had planted five more churches. Now there are six churches of Christ. And those churches believed in planting churches. So by the year 2012, there were 45 churches of Christ just in Warren County, because they believed in church planting. More churches of Christ in Warren County than there are in the states of Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota combined. Take Michigan out. I shouldn't have put Michigan in. Wisconsin, I used to have this down. Wisconsin, Minnesota, and I think I'd jump over to New Hampshire combined. That is, because they believed in church planting, they just blessed so many. And then there's this. One of the churches they planted is called the Old Jericho Church. Not the Old Philadelphia. And a young man grew up in the Old Jericho Church by the name of Charles Holder. Charles Holder died in 1963. He was born in 1871. And he was a church planting machine. By the way, he was a farmer preacher. Never owned a car. Never even owned a buggy. He was, he was a poor man. He, he didn't take much money. Uh, he just lived a poor man, but he had a vision for planting churches up and down what's called the Sequatchie Valley. So that's eastern Tennessee. Chattanooga's on the edge of that. When Charles Holder started planting churches, 
1910, there were 16 churches of Christ in the 20 counties around Sequatchie Valley. Charles Holder planted nobody knows how many churches for sure, dozens. By 2010, so a hundred years later, there are now more than 170 churches of Christ in those counties. And Chattanooga went from two churches to 22 churches. And they're all the work of this guy, Charles Holder, who just said, hey, we can do this. And he would travel from community to community planting churches. He went to Fort Payne, Alabama, which is also kind of on the edge of the mountain there in, in North uh, northeast Alabama. He went to Fort Payne, Alabama and started a church in 1927. And you'll never guess who was there. There was a young man by the name of Billy Harrison who was in his teenage years and he was baptized by Charles Holder, became a member of the church. This family were not Christians before that time. They became members of the church in Fort Payne. Billy grew up, went, fought in the war, moved to Middle Tennessee, uh, became the assistant commissioner of education for the state of Tennessee. He did a lot of things, but one of the things he did was he had a daughter named Julie Harrison that I married. I, I wouldn't have met Julie if Charles Holder had not been a church planter in Fort Payne, Alabama in 1927. I'm just saying, catch the vision. I know you got it. Catch the vision of the legacy we can leave. And it doesn't even cost us that much. <clears throat> I mean, for North Boulevard, it's $300,000. Divide that between the members. We have 3,000 members. What is that? It's almost nothing for us. We've already hired our guy, Kane Atkinson. Kane has been preparing. He's going to train with us for two years. He will, God will, and lead our next church plant, but we want to, want to do a couple more. This time, we're not aiming for campuses. We're aiming for independent churches. And we haven't picked the places yet. We're working on the strategy. We want to make sure that the strategy is effective. Uh, and we actually believe in Cain. We think Cain's going to do a good job. So what we're trying to do then is think through how can we take the gospel to, to, to every corner of the world, plant churches that are already ready to plant other churches. Or to put it this way, we want to plant vineyards that produce grapes that have seeds already in them so that they too can plant more vineyards that produce more grapes that have seeds in them as well. Here's the deal. I, I'm just, you see, I'm excited about this. I know you guys are on. We're going to leave a legacy. I don't know that we think about it that much, but we're going to leave a legacy. One day, statistically, maybe it won't happen, but statistically, just following statistics, North Boulevard will cease to exist, or it will certainly cease to be relevant. Statistically. Why don't we have so many babies before that day comes? that when we stand before the Lord God on the day of judgment, we can say, you know what? We used our time well. We, we did what you asked us to do. I'm telling you, that's what I want to do. I, I get choked up because it's really, that's it. I don't want my name on it. I don't need any personal, I don't, I'm not looking for anything other than there's a lost world waiting for a church that cares enough to say, let's do something about it. And and what does it cost us, really? What does it cost us? Who last go around? When we did the last fundraiser, who suffered? Did anybody suffer? Did we have anybody go homeless or miss a meal or, you know, find themselves in deep poverty because they gave so much? I mean, it's not even that big a deal for most of us to make some kind of a generous contribution. So that's the setup. That's what we're asking. On March the 13th, we're going to hand out those cards. We're going to ask everybody on March the 13th. That's a Sunday. It's coming up. 
would you make a pledge? And you have three years to fulfill the pledge. So our pledge, I don't mind telling you, Julie and I, our pledge is to double our contribution for three years, actually a little bit more than double of our contribution. And, um, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I, I'm kind of doubting we'll miss it a whole lot. It's just not, it's just a, <laughs> will we miss it? Let me say this. What, what about the day you stand before the Lord and some guy over there says, hey, wait, you're at North Boulevard? Y'all started the church that I was baptized in. I know you don't know me, but if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't be here. And I started out with that, that quote from the atheist. There's a whole letter from this atheist. Her name is uh, Charlotte. I've been a Unitarian, Universalist, Humanist, Agnostic, Pagan, Atheist, Buddhist, Pseudo-Hindu, Yoga, uh, whatever. Atheist. Married to an atheist. Lives in Orlando. She worked with our own Roslyn, who is uh, one of the ministers at the church, one of the churches we helped plant in Orlando, the Reclaimed Church, uh, Roslyn Miller. She, she's a teacher at a university, but she also is a, one of our missionaries. Rosalind used to be an atheist, and she connected up with Charlotte, and they just started living life together. She started discipling Rosalind, this atheist, and started sharing the Word of God with her. Can I read to you some of the rest of what Rosalind said? Those of you who know me know that I've been a universalist, a Unitarian Universalist, humanist, agnostic, pagan, atheist, Buddhist, pseudo-Hindu, yogic, spiritually. But I always, always felt a deep hole. Deep down, something was missing I couldn't fill. I had specifically excluded the Abrahamic religions. This is her language. I have a permission to read this. From my studies for many years because of negative experiences of the church and people at church. However, I felt like it was time to read that book that my family had held for generations. Over a year ago, I took on a journey to read the Bible with my dear friend, Rosalind Miller, for the first time. My journey of personal faith took me to a place I never expected. And by the way, I can't read everything she says. She, she was just baptized when she wrote this a couple of months ago, and she hasn't, like, I'm not sure her vocabulary has been baptized yet. So she says, the Bible says that humans, I'll paraphrase, are not all that good. Like, they're really not that good. They fail a lot. Each person acts like, let's just paraphrase, a bad person. But you have to forgive him anyway. And Jesus wasn't who I thought he was. He's much, much better. He healed people. He loved outcasts. He loved everyone, every single person. He's a being of pure love, and he believed in the divinity of humanity so strongly that it literally died to save us from mortal, mortal coil. Anyone who tells you they don't disapprove you based on the Bible isn't reading what Jesus said. He believed in radical, unwavering love. So yesterday... I joined this place of welcoming, kindness, non-judgment, love, and God's grace, born by the Spirit through water, buried through water, and resurrected through Jesus. I'm still the same weird Charlotte, but now I have the Spirit. I love you. You're going to meet Charlotte. I don't know when you're going to meet her. At Disney one day, or at nothing else the day of judgment. And Charlotte's going to say, wait, I was baptized at that reclaimed church. You're North Boulevard. You're the ones who planted that church. And maybe that day you're going to say, oh, my goodness, you know what? The sacrifices we made for this vision, it, it was worth it. It's worth it. We're going to leave a legacy. Everybody will. And we get to choose what the legacy is. I'm proud to belong to a church that knows how to make the right choice. That's you guys. I'm proud to belong to you.
hope you do well. Julie and I will be great. Let's stand up and resolve in your heart. You know what? This is the right thing to do. This matters. Um, this is just who we are.